Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Alami podcast, Change Your Company. Today, we have with us uh, Professor Heidi Gardner, who is a distinguished fellow at the Harvard Law School and was a professor, professor in the Harvard Business School. She is the author of Smart Collaboration, which was published, a book which was published by Harvard Business Press in 2017, and it's a Washington Post bestseller. She's also the founder of Gardner & Co., which is a research and advisory firm, and she holds a master's from the London School of Economics and a PhD from London Business School. Professor Gardner or Heidi, welcome to the Alami Podcast Change Your Company, and thank you for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Uh, let's talk a little bit about smart collaboration. There's a lot has been talked about collaboration, and we know that it's really a critical factor for success. How smart collaboration is different? When we talk about smart collaboration, we are very careful to distinguish it from other types of feel-good collaboration. Because smart collaboration, we can demonstrate, leads to strategic and commercial and talent-related outcomes. So what is it? It is experts coming together, people with different knowledge bases, life experiences, domain expertise, integrating their unique perspectives in order to tackle more complicated or complex problems than any of them could do on their own if they just stayed working in their silos. So it's about basically leveraging this complementary expertise and, and intelligence for a higher performance. Precisely. It hinges on diversity. And here we mean diversity of thought, diversity of experience, diversity of expertise. And when people like that come together, it's incredibly powerful if they know why they're coming together and how they each should be able to contribute. It is absolutely essential that smart collaboration is done mindfully is done deliberately, intentionally, rather than simply throwing a team against a problem, which can create all sorts of inefficiencies. So you talked about expertise, you talked about perspectives. What about personalities? Is it also, it, it kind of a maximize a diff- the diversity of personalities? A hundred percent. So rather than thinking about personalities and, you know, technically as a psychologist, we think personalities are fairly immutable and unchangeable. We tend to talk about behavioral tendencies or, or, or choices that people make. We've developed a tool called the Smart Collaboration Accelerator. And based on my research, we had identified seven behavioral dimensions that relate to this idea of smart collaboration. Let me give you an example. Mm-hmm. Risk seeking. So somebody might, you know, they'll take this on online assessment. It takes about 10 minutes and it's designed so that people can't game the system, but it will tell them where they fall in a spectrum between being a risk seeker, somebody who really sees upside potential and runs after opportunities versus a risk spotter, somebody who sees that opportunity, but really keys in on what are the associated costs or the downside, the risks associated with it. Now, a lot of people think that one or the other is going to be better for collaboration, but our philosophy is strengths-based. We know that once people understand where they fall on this dimension, they can use their natural tendency 
in a highly collaborative way. So if you are operating, for example, in a team where everyone is a risk seeker, that's great. They're out there identifying a million different ways that you could come together and use your complementary expertise. But if you're the risk spotter on the team, crucial role for you to put on the brakes and say, hold on, have we considered what might happen if we don't pressure test this a little bit before we dive in? And that's just one example on one of the seven dimensions of, of collaboration where somebody with a different take on life, a different natural tendency, a different approach to problem solving is going to be powerful in a collaborative setting. Okay. And, and we know that when people, well, a lot of people have blind spots. They imagine themselves to be a certain way. And through, um, through the, the psychometric testing that we've developed here, people get a much more objective view of how they really behave, and then can thoughtfully say, how do I leverage that most effectively, both for higher impact myself and especially to make our team much more productive, efficient, and effective? Excellent. I'm really curious about how did you get into this? What was, do you have an incident or a challenge and made you go and explore this? A hundred percent. I trace this back to a curiosity I developed uh, when I was at McKinsey. So I was in consulting at McKinsey. I was working at the intersection of strategy and organization design. And my experience was that our teams were somewhat variable. Now, of course, you know, being a faithful McKinsey alumni, I will absolutely say we always did high quality work, but, you know, sometimes more than others. And I remember specifically a team where we had a phenomenal composition. I mean, an astrophysicist and a former British Army general, maybe not a general, but, you know, officer, and, uh, and, and I think a concert pianist and a couple of MBA students. And we were on fire, except that the thing we developed in the end was a solid piece of work, but not nearly as innovative as we would have expected when we first came together and saw this diversity of experiences. And, you know, that got me thinking about it. And I observed again and again and again, even as I was leading these projects, that sometimes we really managed to take the collective unique experiences and bring those together incredibly effectively. And other times it was sort of like, you know, we seem to rely on, I don't want to say lowest common denominator, but, you know, more like things that we all had in common, which, mm. by the way, I learned after I left for my PhD is typically what happens. Mm. Um, you know, you get a group of people together and nine times out of 10, they will probably focus on their common experiences rather than what they have that's unique. And again, back to this idea of smart collaboration, when you're very thoughtful about who's on the team and why they were brought together and how their differing perspectives is going to add value to create something more innovative, something more powerful, something more customized, then you can begin to lead and operate in that team in a way that is much more likely to achieve your objectives. Of course, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about what does it really include? Like, so what are, you talked about one dimension, for example, which is risk, uh, et cetera. Can, can we explain it more, like the different dimensions? What does it include? Absolutely. So I, I won't go into all seven of them, yeah. but there are a few that are, are, are you know, very powerful. Yeah. One of them, which I think might be a bit counterintuitive, so worth discussing, is the degree to which people naturally trust others. So, you know, your listeners might be able to, to pinpoint themselves pretty accurately on this. You know, are you the kind of person who meets somebody new and assumes that they are highly competent and that they have the best intentions? 
that means, you know, if yes, that you're on the trusting end of that. Mm -hmm. If, however, you meet somebody new, you know, there's a new joiner on a team or somebody, you know, comes into your organization and you say, I'm going to sit back and wait until they prove themselves. Not that I distrust them, not that I think they're going to do anything wrong, but I'm just, you know, the jury is out, so to speak. I'm just going to wait and see. That means you're on the more wary side of that scale. Now, most people will believe that only highly trusting individuals are going to be good at collaboration. What we can demonstrate, though, is, again, it comes back to diversity of thought and experience. If you've got a team of people who are highly trusting, or even a leader alone who is incredibly trusting and just keeps throwing work at people, believing in their capabilities, sure, they can handle more the wary person on that team is going to say, uh, you know, like, let's put on the brakes a little bit. Mm-hmm. Let's test somebody out. Let's give them, you know, one, one step at a time and see how they do before we throw them into the deep end. And that's an example of how a wary tendency comes into play and enhances collaboration and make sure the team doesn't, um, you know, operate in a dysfunctional space. Maybe I want to just share one example about uh, when I was working in the business development department, I was in uh, tender management. And tender management, basically, it's a team, they put together responses to proposals for big companies. And it, it sits between product who provide the pricing, the solution, and sales who go and sell the customer. And usually the salespeople, they go, they promise the customer about great things. And... And then the product needs to figure it out. And then the product is like, oh, the salespeople are crazy. And, 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 and this is, uh, maybe this is one way, which is one would go out there and then promise some great things and sell it and persuade. And one needs to kind of be creative to, to figure it out. So. A hundred percent. Absolutely. And, and you've just um, sparked uh, me thinking about a, a different dimension here. You know, what you were pro- talking about, my hunch is that the people who were in the sales organization were these risk seekers. You know, they were out there gunning for it and, uh, and other people need to dial them back a little bit like, hang on, don't overpromise. Um, but an, a different dimension is around innovation. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people, when they think about innovation, they think blue sky thinking and they confuse it with creativity. Mm-hmm. Innovation scholars know that innovation has two very different components. There's the, the blue sky thinking, the out of the box, whatever metaphor you want to use, and there's the application. Something by definition can't be innovative if it's not useful. It's both creative and useful. And a lot of people have a propensity to think in one way or another. So one of the dimensions uh, for collaboration, one of the behavioral dimensions that we measure with the accelerator is people's natural tendency to think along complex lines. You know, again, your listeners might say, ah, that's me. I I luxuriate in the theory. I love to think about these big, complicated problems, and I'm always up at 30,000 feet. Or you might have the other person saying, those people drive me crazy. What I really want to know is, so what? What's our next step? How do we get on with it? And that's at the concrete end of that behavioral dimension. You need both of those kinds of thinkers to make innovation happen. Yeah. Uh, This reminds me of one example. I was doing one workshop using like one one assessment, uh, and I divided people into different tendencies. One of them were actually like this, enthusiastic, excited, and one were the very practical. And the one who were very practical were the first one who came back to the room with, you know, finished like within a short period of time. And the one who were, who were the, the excited, et cetera, the time ran out and they were still, 
you know, like uh, arguing about the solution, et cetera. So, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, my hunch is they didn't even get to the solution. They exactly. were still thinking big picture. Oh, this reminds me of this other problem I saw. Absolutely. And the point is, and, and we're really, really clear about this with the, the Smart Collaboration Accelerator, Yeah. either Either end of that spectrum can be a strength for collaboration, but people have to be thoughtful about it. Mm-hmm. So after people take the, the test and it demonstrates where they are, we are you know, very practical. We mm-hmm. come back with instantly online a report that says, you know, given your spot on this, we'll talk about this one behavioral dimension, um, complex or concrete, given where you sit on, on that range, here are three actions you can take to make collaboration much more effective. And let's not be overly optimistic here. There's three watch outs that you need to keep in mind. There's three ways that you could probably misuse that tendency that stifle collaboration or even become a blocker to collaboration. And so we give people really actionable insights about things that they can do really affirmatively and things that they need to pay attention to that are counterproductive. And, uh, and it's in this way that we're trying to, frankly, marry my background of, of you know, the pointy-headed academic, right? You know, I, I love theory. I love the numbers. I love the data and the science underneath things. But I've got the consulting background in me that constantly asks, so what? You know, how are we going to put this into practice? And, you know, it's a privilege for me to be working with a team who is helping me and pushing me constantly to make sure we've got the academic rigor married with the practicalities. Yeah. So when you say thoughtful, you mean being conscious about it. Being and- conscious about it and feeling confident in, in, in how to use these differently. Mm-hmm. You know, what we see oftentimes is that sometimes it's a skill issue, knowing how to do something or what to do. And sometimes it's a, it's, it's, it's a will issue. I'm, I'm unwilling to push outside my comfort zone because this is the way I naturally operate. This is probably the way I've been acting in the workplace and beyond that's allowed me to become as successful as I am. So why should I change? It feels a little scary or awkward. Mm -hmm. And what we want to, to call out for people is this understanding that they can use you know, these different natural tendencies productively. And here's what's really important. They need to make space for people who operate differently. Mm. And, and that's a, a huge call out. One of the sure. products that we offer as well as this individual insight is a leader insights report. And so we give them the compositional breakdown of their team. And we're able to say to them, okay, you as a leader fall on, you know, the risk seeker side, but your team are 60% risk spotters. How are you going to explain an opportunity to them that resonates and, and, and get them excited about something if they're really worried about the downside and all you talk about is the upside? Mm. And, and, and that um, understanding that you know, a leader who's a risk seeker needs to appreciate the risk spotters. They're mm-hmm. actually doing something incredibly helpful and productive for the team. They're not just blockers. They're not just being difficult when they ask these questions about the costs or the risks, et cetera. You should embrace that difference because it's helping you see angles of a problem or potentialities in the solution, et cetera, that you alone couldn't do. And that, by definition, is smart collaboration. Exactly. Excellent. Yeah. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the development side of it um, and how, so 
so being conscious first of all that you have these strengths and you have this tendency which could be in certain situations uh, helpful they could be in other situations not that helpful uh, but how you could develop like certain the opposite tendencies basically is this something could be developed or or not well what we're not asking people to do is change who they are you know think about right now everyone is stressed Everyone, regardless of, you know, how COVID and the surrounding economic dislocation is hitting them, there's an underlying kind of retrograde anxiety that we are all feeling, whether we admit it to ourselves and others or not. And chances are our, our resilience is pretty depleted at this point. Asking people to behave really differently to their natural tendencies is a recipe for failure for themselves and for the organization. What we need to do right now is help people identify their authentic way of operating and then leverage that as a strength. So what we're not saying is develop these opposite tendencies. What we're saying is appreciate where you are, appreciate where your limits are, and then find somebody who has those opposite tendencies. Um, you know, most of these, um, so far we found are the, you know, kind of a bell curve, and a, you know, a, a normal distribution across these tendencies, which means there are plenty of other people out there who are different than you. Being selective about, you know, finding them, opening up about these conversations. You know, one, one piece I didn't mention, which I think is really important when we think about how to use this and why it's effective is that it gives people not just insight into themselves and an appreciation for differences, but a shared vocabulary for talking about it. So the kinds of um, differences that sometimes feel like friction, you know, back to that um, innovation discussion we were having, if Mm. you're a really concrete thinker, it might drive you bonkers to be surrounded by people who are constantly swirling around up at the top and they never get into the action plan. Well, rather than being annoyed by it, we can, in a team, give people the opportunity to talk about this in an objective way and say, ah, there you go again on that complex thing, right? You know, let's be concrete about this. And it takes the heat out of a situation. People aren't blaming each other for being annoying or awkward. They're appreciating those differences and how they can complement one another. Compliment is a word that you used earlier, and yeah. I think it's absolutely essential. So, so that's one angle on development. Do I have time to tell a little story about this? Yes, please tell us. Yeah. So um, it really struck home to us. We were working with the senior leadership team in a big U.S. corporate. And there were 11 people on the team, and two of the leadership team members were from a company that had been acquired within the prior year. And in the interviews we did, we were asked to do a half-day workshop with this team. They were performing really well. Each individual in there was performing well within their sort of business unit, but they realized that as a leadership team, they were suboptimal. They weren't as innovative as they could be. They weren't, uh, they weren't sharing information and knowledge. They weren't leveraging the expertise, and they just had a hunch that they could be more together than what they were. And they asked Gardner and Co. to come in and do a half-day workshop with them, and in pre-interviews, we heard these stories where people couldn't quite put their finger on it, but they knew that a couple of the leadership team members just weren't, in their words, clicking. You know, there wasn't as much chemistry, and they, they, it was hard to know just what was going on here. They thought they just needed more time to integrate. 
Well, when we came in and we administered the accelerator to everyone and fed that back to them, we could see really specific dimensions that the newer joiners were very different from others. And one was around their communication style. So one of the dimensions around communication is close versus distant. Are you somebody who is uh, more likely to engage frequently with your colleagues? And when you do, you're personal about it. So you talk about your life experiences. You mention, you know, what you did last evening. You don't mind if your kid walks through the background and you tell a little story about them or whatever. Or you're the kind who's very closed and you keep a, a you know, tight line between personal and professional and you talk to people when it's necessary for the task, et cetera. Okay, so those are the differences between sort of close and distant communicators. Either one can be fine for collaboration, just used you know, deliberately. And what we found when we were working with this senior leadership team is that the two individuals from the company that had been recently acquired were much more on the close side of that. The company culture where they had been thriving up until the acquisition was one where people socialized a lot and they spent time together after work and they were very happy to bring, you know, partners or spouses along and have people, you know, interact with them and know that personal side. And when they joined this new culture, which was pretty formal, pretty hierarchical, pretty staid and straight and narrow, people found it a little dis, you know, disquieting to hear so much about these people. And, and it actually bordered in a few people's minds on not professional. You know, why do they start all of these conversations with you know, asking about my home life, like that's a little intrusive. And why do they tell these stories? I don't, that's, you know, too much information. And when we uncovered these differences and we were able to lay it out literally in black and white dimensions, you could see the light bulbs going off for people like, Mm -hmm. aha, that's kind of who you are and what allowed you to be successful in in that prior organization. And, And then more importantly, how do we use that effectively? How do we take the energy that you bring and 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 inject that into this more classically, you know, corporate hierarchical culture? And and you know, for that leadership team, it felt like a real breakthrough because they were able to understand not just how these people were different, but what to do about it. And that's, that's powerful. And it's, it's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about smart collaboration mm-hmm. is that it allows people to thrive. It allows mm-hmm. people to be who they are and in a way that others appreciate that and leverage it. Yeah. So, I mean, in a way, the language, I mean, as you said, the vocabulary, it's a, it's a common and you can name things, you can name this trait, this tendencies. And this by itself is so powerful because people could could label it and then could do something about it and then could recognize who have it, who doesn't have it, and how they can complement each other. Absolutely. And here, you know, here's the thing that I think is really critical about this. It's not just a feel-good phenomenon. Right? I mean, I'm sure those people walked out of the room and they felt much better, but we know and we can demonstrate through all of the data that we've collected over more than a decade that they will achieve better business results because of it. 
So, you know, we have collected millions of data records Mm -hmm. across organizations. And sometimes organizations have given us a decade's worth of data. So you can imagine how much data we have. Um, And, you know, and these are, um, the data include things like utilization databases or project management databases or even timesheets. So, you know, in in a biotech company, people are logging their time against different molecules that they're helping to develop because they get funding from different sources, et cetera. So we know who's worked with whom. And these um, project databases allow us to see all of the interconnections that you and I have worked together for, you know, 17 days on this project. And we have a history of working together on other ones. Or, you know, for the lawyers that we work with, God bless them, they track their time in six-minute increments. We know very granular level who's worked with whom and on which client matters and which which deal and, you know, who originated that uh, that piece of work and brought others onto the team. All of these data traces allow us to capture and measure collaboration in lots of different ways. Mm -hmm. And then what we have done, you know, kind of with my whole team, I'm not taking credit for this by myself. We've got economists and mathematicians and and statisticians and Mm -hmm. uh, all sorts of people working with us to crunch the data. And what we know from the models that we build is that we plug in these measures of collaboration along with all kinds of control variables, you know, people's backgrounds and which year it was and what was going on in the economy and, you know, their education and demographic things like their age and their gender and you name it, we plug these into the models and it allows us to isolate the effects of collaboration specifically on outcomes like profit generation Mm -hmm. and revenues and customer acquisition and client retention and the ability to attract and retain talent. I mean, those are critical business outcomes. This takes us from the realm of soft skills. You know, that label kills me. Collaboration is not a soft skill. It's linked to hard, measurable, quantifiable, mission-critical business outcomes. And we love it when people feel better about their work, when they thrive and they're proud of what they do and they can contribute to their fullest. And we know that the companies or their teams, these people themselves, are better off, quantitatively better off than they were when they were operating in a silo. Yeah. Could you highlight like one specific example about the impact of the collaboration on specific business performance? Definitely. Um, Gosh, we have so many of those. Let me give you a a kind of a mini, mini, mini case study. So we found in all of our data records, I'm going to give a shout out to to John Ng, one of my uh, fabulous research associates who worked with me way back at Harvard Business School and has now gone into his own illustrious career at McKinsey and so forth. But he found within these millions of data records, two people that we call jokingly twins. They're not identical genetic twins, but they're so similar to one another in terms of demographic and professional characteristics that, uh, that, that we had a, a controlled sample, uh, even though it was only two people. And um, long story short, we had access to their project records, and we could see over the course of a year that twin one, one of these individuals, uh, worked with about six other people, half of whom were from his own business unit. Then we had somebody who was demographically and professionally very, very, very similar and importantly worked about as no, the same number of hours in a year. So it's not that he was busier. It's just he chose to spend his time differently. And he had dozens of connections across the entire organization. And they were all interconnected to one another. And this, you know, the, his network map looked like a swarm of bees. 
And what we could see by marrying those records with some of the performance outcomes is that Twin2, the one who is much more highly networked and operating in a business sense across all of these different domains, was four times more successful at generating business results with his teams than his less networked, more isolated counterpart. Four times more successful. Wow. Uh, Does this mean that one needs to be more extrovert or this is not what you're Absolutely not. I'm so glad you asked that question. You know, again, back to this idea of strengths-based. One thing that we know about introverts is that they're often spending more time listening than speaking. And when it comes to figuring out other people's strengths, listening is a killer asset. Right? If I listen enough, and I'm an extrovert, so you know, probably I don't spend enough time even though I'm working on this, but somebody who spends a lot of time listening and observing and thinking before they speak is a huge asset to collaboration and is also a treasured collaborator because they're so thoughtful. People know that when they open their mouth, they've really got something to say because they've processed it internally. Mm-hmm. And, and those people are gems on a collaborative effort. And that reputation spreads and more people draw them in. And they're often very thoughtful and deliberate about whom they're interacting with. So they may not have a big superficial network. You know, they're not the kind of life of the party wear a lampshade on their head type but they've often got a very diverse, very powerful work network, people they've actually collaborated with on on real work projects. And so for sure, we can say, you know, without a doubt that introverts and extroverts each have the power to build these incredibly powerful networks and use them effectively. But they have to be thoughtful about how they do this. Mm. Could it be like if uh, someone... Too too much smart collaborative? Could this be possible or not really? Well, I could say people are too collaborative. Um, If we really take the strict definition of smart collaboration and they are very mindful and deliberate about when they're drawing other people in, it's it's less likely. Mm -hmm. But we do know that a lot of people in organizations, certain people in organizations, I should say, are overtapped. They get the reputation for adding a lot of value. And frankly, it's a bit of a lazy response in an organization. They become the usual suspects and they are pulled into initiatives and task forces and committees and projects and the new, new thing. And uh, with a co-author, Mark Mortensen, who's at INSEAD Business School in Fontainebleau, France, he and I wrote a piece that ended up on the cover of Harvard Business Review. We were really um, humbled and, and grateful about that. And it went on to be selected by a bunch of the HBR best of collections and so forth. So we know it really hit a nerve. Yeah. We wrote about the overcommitted organization, precisely this problem. Mm-hmm. And, you know, our eyes were open to this problem, certainly through the executives we were teaching at Harvard and at INSEAD. We heard again and again about these kind of overcommitted individuals. And, you know, for me, one of the the companies I worked with was a biotech company. And, you know, without giving away too much, what we know is that um, there was a problem on one research and development team that, uh, you know, small, small-ish problem, but it became kind of all hands on deck and everyone glommed onto that project and, and make sure to, to rescue it and save it. And, you know, everyone was pulled there. All of the top people were working on it. 
which by definition meant those top people were pulled off of other projects that were frankly higher strategic value and more important. And it ended up reaching board level because a couple of the very strategic projects became severely at risk. Um, And what we saw there by analyzing a lot of the data is unbeknownst to the organization, there were some people in that company who were already committed to eight, nine, 10 projects at once. Nobody had looked at the data that way. They simply hadn't cut their own project databases to understand how committed different people were. When we went in and we asked, you know, on average, how many projects are people working on? Leaders said two or three. And they were right on average. Most people in that company worked on a few projects max. But critical people worked on nearly a dozen. And they're the ones who put other projects at risk when they got pulled in so many directions. And, you know, perhaps they should have raised their hand and say, hey, wait a minute, you know, this is a problem for me. Hmm. But, you know, in a lot of corporate cultures, those people become heroes. They get promoted because they are indispensable. And in some other places, it may be not very safe, psychologically safe to admit that they're stretched too thin. Leaders say, ah, you should be able to handle it. Well, no, actually, it's the job of a leader to track this, to understand this, to put principles in place about how committed people ought to be, how many things they should be working on, and then create all kinds of mechanisms, both formal and informal, for people to be able to raise the flag and say, hold on, this doesn't make sense right now. And so, you know, that's one story that alerted us to the, the problems of, of overcommitted. I wouldn't say it was the smartest collaboration in the world that was going on, but it certainly was overcommitted. Overcommitted. So it's like putting like too many, I mean, people on too many projects at the same time, like under the purpose of collaborating, but actually it's, it's not serving the purpose here. A hundred percent. And, you know, people are trying to do the right thing. I'm not slamming them. Um, they really are best intention. They're, they're identifying an expert and saying, wouldn't it be great to have that expertise on these other projects too? You know, and experts are oftentimes in limited supply. So logically, rationally, on a case-by-case basis, it makes sense to try to leverage that person across these projects. But somebody has to take the bigger macro view and say, how do all of those individual decisions add up to the organizational level? And where are those risks? And how can we be much smarter about figuring out how we deploy our assets to be strategic and smart? That's a great point. Talking about leaders, what could be some applications for leaders? And maybe I want to divide it into maybe three parts, which is the first one is, I am a leader. I like doing things. I'm a driver. I, I like to in, do things on my own. How can I become more smart, collaborative? Well, first, I think if there's a leader who understands that that's their natural tendency, that's step number one. Um, I would say a lot of leaders have a, um, I'm not going to say that they're wrong, but slightly inaccurate perception of how they truly operate. And, and what I mean by that is all of us have the capacity or most of us have the capacity to keep our least collaborative tendencies in check when times are going well. But under stress, 
you know, and I've written about this in Harvard Business Review as well. When, when people are under stress, their natural tendencies come out. They're they're, they're task-focused, and they don't have the sort of mental bandwidth to think strategically about how they're behaving. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of leaders think about their behaviors as the best of. How do they operate when things are going well? But the question is, how do they operate when, when they're under stress? And we know, based on research from the um, Center of Creative Leadership uh, and, and a lots of other um, you know, great, solid research, that one of the things that sets um, the most effective leaders apart from others is their ability to operate and uh, sustain relationships and a strategic view when they're under pressure. And, uh, and so a leader first has to do what you said, which is figure out what my tendency is truly, um, even when I'm under pressure. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then say, you know, under what circumstances is that not very helpful? And how do I surround myself? How do I identify people accurately? Not the face that they want to put forward, but their natural tendencies, because that's where the real source of strength is. How do I identify those people who can complement me? And importantly, how do I create psychological safety for those people to be able to speak up, to contribute in ways that are different from mine, and to give me the kind of feedback I need to hear, the honest, objective, constructive feedback that somebody who operates different from, differently from me will be able to say, hold on, you know, this is not the time for charging ahead. This is the time for taking stock or whatever the advice is. Excellent. Let's talk about leadership team. How, as a leader, how can I make my leadership team become more smart, collaborative? I think as a, as a leader of leaders, you're a role model. And one, uh, you know, one small piece of advice that we recently wrote about with my co-author Ivan Matviak is, uh, and this was, um, uh, we wrote about seven strategies to promote collaboration in a crisis. And one of the pieces that, of advice we gave to leaders is to encourage naive questions. And that sounds like a funny thing, you know, you know, we just want people tossing in kind of random questions. Isn't that a big waste of time? No, especially in a crisis, there is the tendency for us to uh, overly apply and, um, and misapply what we believe to be prior patterns. So what am I talking about here? Um, let me rely on some research that was done with chess grandmasters. Um, so, you know, grandmaster chess players, you know, champions in the world of chess, they are phenomenal at pattern recognition. They're able to say, ah, given the pattern on the board right now, what's likely to happen five, six, seven moves from now? What we know from research with them is that when you put them under two conditions, you put them under pressure, especially time pressure, and you can confront them with a novel situation, you know, like a board configuration that's theoretically possible, but really, really unusual. They wouldn't have seen it before in a match. You put them under pressure. You give them a novel problem to solve. They will misapply their pattern recognition skills and make mistakes on the chessboard that are as silly as the ones I would make as a novice. So that's why we say pattern recognition can be a trap, a trap of expertise. When you're in a crisis, everyone's under pressure, and this is a new, new situation, unprecedented in so many ways. 
leaders are unfortunately likely to say, oh, I've seen this before. We got through the 08 financial crisis, or we got through this other supply chain crisis or whatever it was. Let's do that again. Encouraging people to ask the naive question, even as simple as, are we sure this is the same as the last time around? Mm-hmm. Will, will spark us to reflect on where those differences are and, and trigger us to think more deeply about a problem and not jump to the conclusions that are so tempting because they've worked before. So creating this psychological safety so people could voice different opinions and, and opposite opinions to what's, what's common. Absolutely. And another facet of psychological safety that is so critical is the ability for people to admit mistakes. Mm -hmm. And mistakes will happen all the time and under tremendous uncertainty and stress and work from home environments or remote working when we, you know, aren't seeing each other, it's harder to read body language, all those kinds of things make mistakes more likely to happen. And a leader of other leaders who role models what it means to create a psychologically safe environment where people admit mistakes as soon as they arise so they can be fixed while they're small problems and so that, importantly, other people can learn from those errors, that is incredibly powerful. Loads of research, whether it's from you know Google or or Amy Edmondson at Harvard Business School, you know all of these people for you know more than a decade now have amassed so much research demonstrating the powerful again business related outcomes or in some cases life saving outcomes associated with an environment where people feel safe to admit mistakes and ask for help. It's very, it's crucial. Very good. And how as an organizational leader one can drive this smart collaboration across the whole organization? How, how, how he or she could make it part of the culture? Uh, part of the culture, that's so critical. You know, when you and I both know that when something is part of the culture, it's what people do without having to think about it, right? So we think, and you know, loads of, of, of scholars and lots of practitioners know that culture change is a process and not an event. There's no, you know, snap of the fingers that a leader can do that helps to change the culture. We know that organizational leaders have to have a lot of patience and they have to be driving culture change top down and bottom up. That's a great point. So some of the top down changes are the role modeling we've just been talking about. Actions speak a lot louder than words. And so if a leader is out there preaching collaboration and then the next day rewards somebody who has very sharp elbows and is trying to do things on their own and hog the credit, you know, if that's who you reward financially, or even if that's who you hold up as a hero, oh, hey, listen, you know, John just went out and, you know, bagged this new customer. How great for John. Okay, John and the team of everyone with John who made that happen, right? If you hold up individuals as heroes and then tell everyone they ought to be collaborative, you've just crushed it. You've just, you know, killed any chance of people really believing that you mean it. So role modeling, creating an environment where, where team players are celebrated and creating the systems and structures, you know, from a performance management and financial um, incentives and things for, you know, people to be recognized and rewarded. Those are top-down actions. And then lots of bottom-up actions. That's why we developed the accelerator. It's helping people, you know, giving them the skill and the will to be able to collaborate more effectively. And, uh, 
you know, and it's everything in between. It's making sure middle managers uh, follow these kinds of behaviors. It is um, helping people identify anti-collaborative behaviors and giving them the vocabulary mm-hmm. to weed that out, giving them the permission and uh, and the, the the resources in some cases to to take um, anti-collaborative actors out of the system, sideline them, whatever it takes. Um, and I think you know that kind of example setting is crucial in this as well. It needs to be done gracefully and compassionately, but um, let's stop pretending that uh, we should rely on people who are anti-collaborative and then hope the rest of the people just, you know, kind of pick up the pieces. Absolutely. What's one advice you have for leaders and organization? If it's just one advice. Only one. Uh, During these times of crisis and renewal, make sure we're keeping an eye on diversity and inclusion. I'm afraid right now that we have lost a lot of that dialogue and a lot of the momentum behind those efforts. And here's why right now it's more important than ever. Research tells us that when people are operating under stress and when they're operating in environments where they're not actually face-to-face as much as they might normally be, certain categories of people are more likely than others to suffer in that environment. So the natural human tendency, psychologists call it homophily. It's the tendency for us, just as human beings, hardwired almost, to instinctively reach out to affiliate with and trust others who we feel are similar to us. Mm -hmm. That happens naturally. And because as we talked about before in this crisis, people are stressed. That tendency without us realizing it is going to come to the fore. And that means that the opposite is happening. You know, imagine that we get off this, you know, this discussion we're having and I find myself with five extra minutes and I think, hey, this would be a great time to reach out to one of my team and just check in. The person who springs to mind is probably the usual suspect. I need as a leader to be absolutely deliberate and saying, wait, who isn't getting that phone call? Who hasn't had a chance to vent? Who hasn't had a chance to hear about the new opportunity? Who hasn't been you know, connected with? And these kinds of diversity and inclusion pieces, you know, the, again, just small actions add up because this crisis, unfortunately, is not going away anytime soon. We are not going to wake up tomorrow and suddenly find ourselves back in real life and unstressed. And I want people to think about systemically and individually what each of us can do to be identifying and harnessing the unique perspectives that people bring, and especially to be looking out for people who are on the periphery of the organization already and drawing them in closer to the center and making sure they have access to opportunities and resources and mentoring and the thriving that we want people to be able to engage in when it comes to to working in an organization that really can be far more powerful in every sense than a lot of them are capturing today. This is excellent. Um, Heidi, what's what's a legacy that you like to leave behind with, with your work, especially with this work around smart collaboration? That's a powerful, that's a powerful question. I, and I think what we were just talking about ultimately is the legacy I hope to lead, uh, leave. I'm, you know, I'm passionate about the idea of collaboration 
yes, we can tie it to commercial outcomes. We can tie it to business results. But what powers me to get up, you know, every day to keep writing about this subject, to researching it, to having these kinds of conversations and getting the word out is the idea that we can make every workplace a more inclusive uh, organizational environment where people love what they do, where they feel like they're bringing their best selves to work, and where that belief in themselves, the contributions that they're actually making, they don't just feel good about this, they're truly leveraging their experiences and their knowledge to do something better, to make it more efficient, to make uh, working more effective, to make a better customer experience, to help patients, to help colleagues. When people thrive at work, the benefits are incredibly tangible in those work outcomes, and then they radiate outward. People go home or they walk out of their home office and they're glowing. And you know their, their, their partner or their roommate or their children say, hey, what happened? And then they pass it on. And we know from loads of work on resilience that it's contagious, that people are able to, to, to spread that positivity and that the, the, the well-being outcomes, the societal outcomes can be absolutely generative and positive when people have that experience of thriving. And if I can do just a little bit humbly to play my part in helping that happen, that alone would be a powerful legacy that I'd be delighted to leave behind. That's amazing. Uh, thank you so much, Heidi, for being with us today. We, um, the smart collaboration, it's a, it's a tool to, for self-awareness, for understanding, for development, for creating uh, great teams, complementing teams. Uh, and uh, I, I'm, I'm very grateful for you being with us today and this interview. And uh, I'm really excited about your journey, making the impact in these uh, organizations. Uh, in the in the workplace, and uh, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you so much for an interesting conversation. Thank you.